Hey guys, welcome back to the OCC. This is Jake, and we are continuing today our summer completing movie series, focusing on the directors and actors uh, and filmmakers who have prominent work coming in the fall. Obviously, what is coming in the fall is constantly evolving. But David Fincher's new film, Mank, appears to be on track. This is a Netflix film, so it doesn't require the theater experience. Um, And this is a movie that's already finished. So hopefully we will still get to see this this fall. This is the story of Herman Mankiewicz, who co-wrote Citizen Kane uh, and and the battle with Orson Welles over the, the screenwriting credit for that movie. And it's an opportunity to dig into the history of David Fincher. And so joining me to do that, rejoining the OCC, is Alex McClure. Thanks for joining. Welcome back to the show. Hey, Jake. Good to be back. Uh, I'm excited to dig into the world of David Fincher. So David Fincher is an interesting one. Unlike some of the other filmmakers that we've covered on this show, he's not an auteur. He, he's only ever written two shorts. So most of his features that he's most known for are, you know, obviously working with some of the great screenwriters. But because perhaps he doesn't write his own movies, it's a little different than covering like a Wes Anderson or a Spike Lee how would you define, I guess, David Fincher's style and what, if anything, makes it unique? Yeah, you know, the first thing I would say is David Fincher is a visual wizard of the highest order. I think he and Steven Soderbergh were the pioneers in many ways of digital filmmaking, which is basically everywhere now and used by every filmmaker except for, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson or Quentin Tarantino or Christopher Nolan. And, you know, he feels like a director for our time, a director for the internet and tech era with how he shoots his movies, obviously, what equipment he uses, how characters in his movies interact with each other, and uh, the camera innovations he's capable of inventing because of the equipment he uses. So those things considered he's a director for the modern era he makes a lot of really good movies there's no question about that do you feel like you have a personal connection to his work i wouldn't say it's personal necessarily but i will say i love how he views the world i admittedly am not a fan of sentimentality in movies except for maybe like richard linklater and a few others I like dark material that challenges how you think of systems and societal uh, societal norms. And he does that. He has a very cynical, <laughs> perverse, twisted purview of uh, humanity. And I love the way I feel walking out of some of his movies, even if it's a feeling of disgust and, um, you know, awestruckness, uh, so to speak. There's a quote of his, he says, I don't like sentimentality because I don't like movies that tell me, in quotation marks. I want to engage in a movie that says, here it is. It's not a colder point of view. That's reductive. It's more adult. You know, because of that, because of, you know, the way he presents things, how the world actually works, I find myself uh, attracted to that because I have uh, a dark black soul inside of me, I guess. <laughs> or yeah, we're, we're what we'll do for this conversation. We'll go kind of one by one through his features, and yeah, I'm, I'm just sort of it's striking me now that how I feel at the end of this conversation may be really rewarded, and and like we've celebrated great work, or it may just be very 
morose and kind of beaten down by some some pretty heavy themes. But either way, um, it should be an interesting exercise. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I also appreciate that, you know, he's just a perfectionist, you know. He's known for doing an excessive amount of takes because he knows exactly what he wants, and that's what the best directors do. You want them to have a point of view. You don't want them to just roll over and submit to studio uh, notes and feedback. So he's kind of a rebel, the kind of bad boy of mainstream movie making in a way. He's kind of got this anti-authoritarian streak through all his movies. And uh, because of that, I, you know, I think he makes the most, some of the most engaging, interesting, subversive stuff out there. And, uh, you know, just researching what he thinks of some of his projects. He's just like incredibly dynamic interview subject. He's really bright and witty and has a very dry sense of humor and a grandiose vocabulary. I, I kind of think of him as the president of Harvard in that one scene with the Winklevoss twins where they say something along the lines of, well, we think you're wrong. And he's like, I'm devastated by that. You know, he's, he's the, the, the smartest kid in the room, so to speak. And, uh, uh, because of that, he's one of my favorite filmmakers. So he starts his directorial career with two Rick Springfield music videos. Um, he then goes on to make music videos for Christopher Cross, The Outfield, Patti Smith, Eddie Money, Loverboy, Farner, Sting, Steve Winwood, Paula Abdul, Roy Orbison, Don Henley, Aerosmith, Billy Idol, Iggy Pop, George Michael, and Madonna, to name a few. Continues to make high-profile music videos throughout his career. Since his last movie, Gone Girl... And the next movie, Mank, he's made the suit and tie music video for Justin Timberlake. So this has been sort of something that's been sprinkled throughout his career. He also worked in visual effects um, very early before he made uh, his directorial debut. So he was in the visual effects department on Return of the Jedi, Never Ending Story, and Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. But he finally gets his feature opportunity in 1992. Uh, Much like how James Cameron got to start uh, with Aliens, Ridley Scott drops off of Aliens 3, and this becomes David Fincher's first movie. I think it's fair to say that our smoothly running facility has suddenly developed a few problems. I can only hope we are able to all pull together over the next few days until the rescue team arrives for Lieutenant Ripley. It's here. Where are you at on Aliens 3? Well, he's said this before, but it's it's a seemingly impossible task to live up to a top three sci-fi movie in Alien and a top three action movie in Aliens. Right away, you're playing from behind, basically. And it was incredibly troubled shoot. The process, this is a great interview answer. He said the whole process was akin to being sodomized ritualistically for two years. Whoa. <laughs> so that, that pretty much sums it up. Uh, but, you know, you can tell this is a movie that was recut by the studio. This is not a director's vision by any means. Just some of the transitions from scene to scene don't make sense. And you're just never fully invested the way you are with the first two movies. But I will say, like, all the alien scenes, the alien kill scenes are pretty great. They're fully realized and 
extremely violent. So there's no doubt that there's there's kind of a baseline set for someone with a vision and a visual verve to execute a movie on this scale. Uh, but it, it's, you know, it's definitely the least personal of his movies and doesn't have enough of his filmmaking DNA in there. So I am going to go with ranking it dead last at 10th. I don't love the Alien movies in general. Like, I think the first one I, I acknowledge is a technological accomplishment for its time. I think I'm in a really big minority where I just like Aliens kind of bores me. The second mm-hmm. one. Um, and so while Alien 3 is like by no means one of my favorite movies, I do sort of appreciate the little bit of Fincherness to just like, you know, so Aliens, the second movie is all about, you know, preserving this young girl who's hiding in the thing. And, and David Fincher just starts the new movie being like, well, she's dead. Forget about her. Right. <laughs> and then you have the whole movie sort of centered around like kind of a pending looming death for the main character and so i kind of appreciate the darkness and sort of the like lack of sticking to the conventional franchise kind of progression obviously i think that's probably why the studio recut big parts of it but um it's you know it's definitely as as a first feature and we're going to get into a second feature in a second, which is like a pretty astounding second feature. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say that as a first feature, Aliens 3 is like, I think, perfectly fine. I don't I don't dislike Aliens 3 at all. No, I agree. It's it's not bad by any means. Uh, but just the rest of his movies are so fantastic that it, it's lacking by comparison. I, I, I want to read something that it, it's a quote of his, but it kind of sets the tone for how he deals with the status quo of Hollywood movie making. And so keep in mind, this is when he was a no one uh, on Alien 3. I mean, no one knew who he was. And this was his first shot working with Fox executives. So he said, I had to work on it for two years, got fired off at three times, and I had to fight for every single thing. No one hated it more than me. To this day, no one hates it more than me. But I'd always had this naive idea that everybody wants to make movies as good as they can be, which is stupid. I learned on this movie that nobody really knows, so therefore no one has to care. So it's always going to be your fault. I'd always thought, well, surely you don't want to have the 20th Century Fox logo over a shitty movie. And they're like, well, as long as it opens. So, I mean, that's just kind of his purview from a very early age that basically dealing with studio execs is an exhausting process for someone as creative and innovative as him. And uh, that attitude has carried through the rest of his career. So it's really interesting. I mean, you talk about a movie that probably, well, we know alarmed and scared the hell out of studio executives. You move on to his second feature. And that is of course, seven. I took a souvenir her pretty head. What the fuck is he talking about? Give me your gun. What's going on over there? Put the, put the gun I down. I saw you with the box. What was in the box? Because I envy your normal life. Put the gun down, David. It seems that envy is my sin. Oh, uh, what's in the box? Yeah, I mean, maybe the most nihilistic studio movie ever made. This certainly launched his career. Uh, I think he was very in vogue after this and uh, introduced all the elements that we would see in the rest of his movies. You know, the exploration of 
good and evil, the world painted as a hopeless, unfair, uncaring landscape. And it established his visual style in his cinematography of vast darkness and shadows and flashlights and the pal uh, palettes of tinged yellow and green. This movie is interesting because it's like a true movie of the 90s. It's a very like grungy punk uh, kind of aesthetic, like a, a nameless city. And it's got kind of a noir vibe, neo-noir vibe. You know, in terms of the performances, I mean, Freeman and Pitt played so well off each other as kind of the yin and yang of detectives. And Brad Pitt is a little raw and unvarnished, but it completely works for this character and his comeuppance uh, at the end of the movie. Kevin Spacey, uh, he who must not be named, but uh, he uh, he gives his best performance here. He's absolutely electrifying as John Doe. I mean, just stunning shit. And as soon as he enters the movie, it's just full tilt masterful in its suspense and execution of the horrifying uh, last sequence. And still to this day, I've seen this movie probably 20, 25 times, maybe more. I, I still get knots in my stomach at the what's in the box reveal. And you just walk out of that movie in a daze. You know, I, I do think it is the, the dialogue is a little heavy handed sometimes with the seven deadly sins and Freeman kind of explaining how to be a cop to pit in some scenes. So so in that regard, some of the pulpy stuff doesn't hold up as well for me. But I mean, it's it's overall just a brilliant genre exercise for a sophomore film. And I've, I've got it ranked as his third best overall film. Yeah, it's an astounding second feature and to your point about sort of the dark nature of kind of where fincher tends to do his best work in some ways andrew kevin walker is a pretty good match for that with you know you think about films like eight millimeter and even sleepy hollow to a degree it's i mean this it's like a pretty brutal watch i think i mean it like now you know it's such a canonical movie that everybody's seen so many times that at least you kind of know what to expect but i mean the I, I still remember watching seven like being quite young i mean probably like middle or high school and it, it's it's like a really visceral experience yeah. Um, but it's kind of like, I think once you get through it, it, it's something that just sticks with you and, and you, it's kind of one of the more memorable exercises of filmmaking that I think kind of any modern director has achieved. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's rewarding, uh, in the end, like you feel like you went through the ringer, uh, but you definitely feel uh, a little less optimistic about life and humanity after that. Um, I, I want to read something uh, that he said, because I, I think this is a brilliant um, choice in, in showing all the kills in that, you know, you see whatever word, whatever sin uh, is written on the wall above the body and all the scenes, but you don't really get a good, good look at the bodies. It kind of glimpses over and Fincher talked about kind of showing less. He said, so the imagination, if properly primed, can do more than any army of makeup artists. That was always my thing, get people to fear it, get them to see it in their heads. So that's uh, that's kind of like the, the Jaws uh, principle, you know, like le less is more kind of, and uh, you know, you can paint your own 
disturbing picture in your head without having to see every scar or bruise or uh, you know, puncture in these victims. He deals with some heavy and sort of unpleasant material throughout his career, but I'd say it kind of, it, it almost goes in reverse. Seven is is his most brutal movie, I think, and like deals with its most, I guess, gut-wrenching topics, whereas then kind of as he gets through his career, even like when we talk about a movie like Zodiac, which we'll get to, it's like, you know, dealing with the same general idea of a serial killer but it's he leans much more heavily into that sort of like you know no but not see and I, I feel like seven is still just very raw and, and visceral in the way that he that he delivers it you know it's it feels like a malpractice to jump so quickly off of such a definitional work but there's so many movies to get to so yeah. i'll just jump now to one of my quietly favorite movies from David Fincher. It's not one of his most celebrated, but it's a movie that I've just always loved, and that is 1997's The Game. This is all the game. Bullshit, all right, bullshit. I don't have that guy. They shot that guy flying goldfish, and then they killed him. Think about it, what did you I see? I saw them kill him. You know, what did you really, really see this whole time? Special effects, squibs, squibs, like in the movies. Nicholas? Nicholas, listen. Tell me you got a real gun. Look, goddamn bullets. Okay, 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 I'll put it down. Yeah. Yeah, the game. This is uh, kind of a crazy. I was thinking of like what this reminded me of, and it's kind of a crazy take on a Christmas Carol in a way. It's it's like an old yeah. gr- grouchy, isolated, wealthy guy that needs to have kind of a, an awakening to start loving life again. Fincher said the purpose of the game is to take your greatest fear, put it this close to your face, and say, "There, you're still alive. It's all right." So thought that was interesting but um you know it's uh it's set in san francisco and fincher's from the bay area so it's kind of personal in that way and uh it it feels like he knows these kinds of areas of san francisco really well and i think that this is the right setting for this kind of paranoid thriller you know in, in the vein of vertigo and other great san francisco set movies it's superbly shot with like rich mahogany and deep leathery shadow to kind of show nicholas's you know exuberantly wealthy world and and also that's the nicest uh racquetball court i've ever seen in my life (laughs) and then it gets kind of more wild with like the bright lighting and graffiti when things kind of start to lose control so that that's an interesting kind of uh visual transition as um the the tone kind of shifts and i you know it's a movie kind of like it's kind of like a nightmare scenario for uh control freaks when like everything you hold dear material things mostly uh start to spiral away from you and i think michael douglas is actually really great in this uh i i I hadn't seen it in a while but like this the smugness and kind of dissatisfaction and basically distaste for all kinds of people uh, and then turning to vulnerability and terror. It's an interesting genre exercise. I I don't think the reveal holds up at all. Uh, I I read something interesting that he, I think Fincher was thinking of ending it or maybe he got a note from someone else that he should end it just as um, Douglas is like coming up from the, the parachute landing in his party, but he's his vision is still kind of blurry and he sees Conrad and then it just cuts to black. I think I like that more, like keeping it more ambivalent. 
I, I just think he gets over it way too fast. Like he literally just jumped off a building to kill himself after he shot his brother to death. Uh, so it felt a little cobbled together, but it's still, still entertaining. Definitely, I think, a minor work of his compared to the others. So I'm putting it uh, seventh overall. Yeah, it's this is not an important film by any means. Um, and it's also, I mean, when you say the ending doesn't hold up, like it absolutely doesn't hold up. Like this is just like a quintessential 90s thriller, which is just a genre of movie that I personally love. I mean, right. even down to having like Michael Douglas and Sean Penn be kind of, you know, two people you probably haven't thought about in, in a while. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I just the kind of the gall to just like, basically turn this like you know fairly taut like kind of intense couple hours into just like a gimmick um right is sort of silly like again yeah you watch that today and nobody would buy it but i think it also just makes it really memorable and like you know showing up with a t-shirt that's like a joke t-shirt um it's kind of your big payoff for the movie um i i love this movie yeah like it's honestly probably my favorite fincher not out of not because i think it's the best but just because i just really like it a lot (laughs) wow okay yeah big game fan i i I think the lead up to it is really interesting like the the first sit down with him and sean penn and you kind of get their relationship and i i think james redhorn as like the first crs guy that he has like the introductory interview with is absolutely fantastic in it uh, r.i.p the late james redhorn and then uh i i kind of like the home movie aspect too i don't i don't know if you watch succession but that opening home movie was like eerily reminiscent of the succession opening credits kind of theme when they're doing the flashback to when he was young or whatever so so yeah, there there's there's some good stretches of it, but the ending I just don't think is earned at all. So yeah. No, yeah, I mean it's it's pretty silly. But it's also creative. I mean, it's in like you know, I feel like we live in a time now where whenever people are talking about movies, they're like the overarching like theme of the conversation is like nobody takes any chances anymore, nobody makes anything that like is really creative. And I just watched uh, a new movie called Palm Springs. That's on Hulu. I don't know if you've had a chance to see that at all. I haven't seen it yet. I know it's getting good reviews, yeah. Well, I'm not going to spoil anything about it, but it's it's enormously creative. Like, it really feels very, like, fresh, but it's also sort of silly and ridiculous. And in a similar way, like, you know, I say the game doesn't hold up, but I do think that, like, the boldness of just saying, like, I have this really crazy premise and I'm just going to make it like I feel like there's there's something about it that I actually think would be refreshing if somebody made a movie like the game today. I I totally agree with you that it's um yeah, I mean, th- this kind of like mid budget movie is a prime example of uh, exercise that doesn't get made anymore, even even if it's by a premier director. So in that in that regard, yeah, it's uh a product of a long lost era in Hollywood for sure. Well, I think, I think it's clear that I kind of have a little bit of a personal nostalgia um, bias for this movie, but it also is totally ridiculous that we've spent twice as long talking about the game as seven. (laughs) So I'm going to move on to Fincher's next movie, which is probably his, would you say that this is the defining movie of David Fincher's career? Of course I'm talking about fight club. The first rule of fight club is, You do not talk about Fight Club. 
Second rule of Fight Club is you do not talk about Fight Club. Third rule of Fight Club, someone yells stop, goes limp, taps out, the fight is over. Fourth rule, only two guys to a fight. Fifth rule, one fight at a time, fellas. Sixth rule, no shirts, no shoes. Seventh rule, fights will go on as long as they have to. And the eighth and final rule, if this is your first night at Fight Club, you have to fight. Defining yes in, uh, in the regard that he basically had carte blanche after this. Even though it was a commercial and kind of critical failure, the craft of the making of this movie is undeniable. And so everyone knew he was for real after this. Like he's, he's one of the top dogs in terms of talented filmmakers. So in that regard, yes, I would say it is a defining movie for, uh, you know, his career. But, you know, overall, this is a movie completely of its time and place. I love this movie, but it's wild to me that this ever got made. I mean, it's so ugly in its depiction of the forgotten masses of a certain age of men. It's violent. It's misogynistic. And with <laughs> with the PC culture the way it is now, Jake, can you imagine trying to greenlight this movie today? I mean, Fincher and everyone else involved would be canceled just for like even considering making it and not to mention 9-11 and any of this movie. Wow. So like the fact that it came out a couple of years before 9-11, uh, I mean, it's, it's really like a perfect movie for that for 1999 really. But just in terms of how it got made, like Fincher read Chuck, Polynuke's book and went back to Fox, even though he had a horrible experience with Alien 3 with them. Instead, he wanted to make the big version of this movie with movie stars, not the $3 million version of it. And, uh, you know, wanted to shine a light on how there's a loss of masculinity in the culture and that we had become slaves to consumerism and a certain kind of lifestyle. And as a result, just felt empty inside. You know, I think Ed Norton and Brad Pitt are just lights out in this movie. Uh, Norton definitely showing his range, playing kind of the beta male after uh, American History X. And then Pitt just becoming basically like a sex icon all over again, like he did in uh, Thelma and Louise. And he's so magnetic in this movie. And, uh, you know, I think people really started to say after this, he can really act. You know, it's not just charisma, like he actually has chops now. I kind of have a weird historical relationship with this movie, like going back to when it first opened and being in middle school and not really knowing that much about movies. But I, I just knew that everyone was quoting it and it was the cool DVD to have. And you saw Tyler Durbin as like a cool guy without really understanding the movie. And then I went back to, like, I thought it was really heavy-handed with Norton's narration, just kind of a bummer to watch. And now I'm back in the opinion that this is a sing singular experience and Fincher is just the perfect filmmaker to explore these themes in this world. And he also really started to play with um, visual effects pretty heavy here uh, for the first time. 
that you know not counting alien 3 i guess but like with the plane crash and the buildings going down and that brilliant opening shot of kind of going backward out of ed norton's body and then it ends on his face with a gun pointed in his mouth it's it's a it's a very special movie overall and i have it fifth overall in his filmography yeah i have a i have sort of a similarly like complicated personal relationship with the movie as time has gone on and like i've you know become more interested in film and film history in general i appreciate the iconicness of some of the scenes in this movie i mean the pixies at the end with the the buildings exploding around him and the performances uh from from Norton and Pitt in particular, I've never really liked this movie that much relative to my peers. Like I think that the, to your like you said, this was a movie that kind of was like the movie that everybody liked. And it's interesting to me that I don't like it because I a lot of the themes are themes that are interesting to me. Like I'm interested in masculinity and I'm interested in exploring the norms of society that can be questioned. But I think that there's just like kind of a cynicism that's that's never really sat great with me like that kind of manifests itself both obviously in just like the overt ideology that that Pitt's character promotes but also just in the way that the story is structured and the the need to sort of redefine the whole movie in the last couple like you know 10-15 minutes um Mm -hmm. it, it has always sort of not sat great with me so this is a movie that like i i think i recognize it it, the importance of it but i don't have a lot of personal passion for it i I, i'm with you yeah no it's not it's not totally personal to me either and i'm with you with some of the narration and they break the fourth wall sometimes and it's more like it's kind of just like a cute gimmick and it kind of takes you out of the story a little bit but um uh, you know, overall, I think there's like just a real fierce visual style, obviously, and um, it, it it sticks with you even even if you like don't want to see it again for a few years. It, it definitely you're definitely thinking about it after you uh, after you turn it off. Yeah, it's it's highly memorable. So we'll go on to his next film now. Um, this was in 2002, Panic Room. Yeah, so I, I see this as more of kind of a physical exercise kind of film for him, kind of like doing a marathon or something, you know, like, I, I don't feel like there's a lot of personal passion in this for him other than like the visual challenge. And, you know, he had 400 locations for Fight Club, so he wanted to try a single location for a film, kind of like Rear Window, you know, Hitchcock obviously being a big uh, influence on him. And that gorgeous brownstone that we're in the whole time was built entirely on set, which is kind of shocking. And I, I watched a behind the scenes documentary of the making of that movie, which was actually really interesting. And they built like all four stories of that house on a set and it cost like $6 million. Wow. Cra- crazy, crazy. But um, 
yeah, David Cap wrote the script who, you know, wrote Jurassic Park is like a great Hollywood screenwriter. Nicole Kidman actually was hired to do to play Jodie Foster's role and shot some scenes, but then had an injury from Moulin Rouge. So she had to drop out. And I think uh, Hayden Panettiere uh, was the daughter originally. And I, I think I read something that uh, she annoyed the hell out of Fincher. So she got fired and uh, Kristen Stewart was brought in. So, yeah, I mean, this is definitely kind of lower on my list overall. I mean, I, I think there's some really awesome shots in this how, how he moves through the different levels like moves through floors moves through walls um you know all the different perspectives and how the layout and the choreography and the staging of all the actors um is executed is is top notch but overall you know the story is pretty slight you know you barely it's the first night that this mom and daughter in this house and you just don't really feel for that. You kind of do near the end, but overall you're just not nearly as invested. And I, I, I gotta say Jared Leto is maybe just like one of the most worthless, like villains in any movie I've ever seen. He's just an idiot and like just incredibly annoying. He's going, I, I, I like Jared Leto in some movies, uh not this one though uh and Dwight Yoakam is actually very menacing and and good and I thought Kristen Stewart actually was excellent I I kind of forgot that she was in it uh altogether but I I think she's great but again this is this is a minor work I think in his overall filmography and I think I have it ranked let me see here uh eighth eighth overall Eighth overall, okay, yeah, yeah. I, I agree. It's not, it's not one of the more important works when you're just evaluating kind of the impact of David Fincher on modern cinema. It's not really a movie you think about. Yeah, I'd argue that the next one, a movie that's pretty pivotal for Fincher as a filmmaker, um, and that is Zodiac. The poster that ripped through. The handwriting is the closest that we have ever come to a match. Rick didn't draw any posters. No, he drew this one. Mr. Graysmith, I do the posters myself. It's my handwriting. I won't... I won't take any more of your time. Why don't I just go and find out when we play that film? Well, that's all right. It's not a problem. Just down in the basement. Not many people have basements in California. I do. I think this is one of his masterworks. I, I think this is one of the best movies of the 21st century. Incredibly personal for him. Uh, obviously, growing up in the Bay Area, you know, you, you feel it. You feel that he's really invested in this story. And uh, I, I read something that he grew up in the Bay area at the time of the reign of Zodiac and had recalled how a patrol car once trailed his bus journey to school, because that was one of his, that was one of the Zodiac's threats that he was going to blow up school buses basically. And that just kind of stuck with him. So 
you know, I, I I think this is a culmination of experience he's he's had in his life and especially his early life. So it was cool that he, uh, you know, that it came to fruition. But I, I think this this movie is really interesting in that it's it's about obsession. It's it, it's really not as much about the killing and the killer himself as the people that are, you know, instructed or it's their job to find him. So, you know, Robert Graysmith, the reporter or the cartoonist and Paul Avery, the reporter, and then Dave Toski, the cop, you know, it, it shows the mundanity kind of of everyday investigative work and how much of a slog it is. And, and it's fascinating that the story like spans so many years and it, it kind of transitions from one character to the next. And in the end, they're all, their life has kind of, there's a hole left in it, whether it's personal, like whether their family has left them or whether they're addicted to drugs now or an alcoholic or whatever. But it shows that, you know, obsession, the the hold that obsession can take over your life and in the end sometimes it's not even about finding the true answer but like the place that that obsession has created in your daily life basically so but overall i mean this is kind of like his first um true period movie and i think harris vitas the the late great cinematographer just did a fantastic job of recreating that era I'm, I think of the uh, the the cab killing in particular when uh, Ruffalo and Anthony Edwards are there and the the color of the cab and just the the shadows it just totally throws you into a different era I think and it it's it's pretty powerful and I, I think all three performances are incredible I, I don't think Robert Downey Jr. has been better since this movie sorry marvel fans but uh this is his last truly great performance and i gotta say john carroll lynch as uh the prime suspect in the zodiac case i mean that that interview scene in like the factory break room is so haunting and he he's so perfect and just gives off this this sense of uh, even if he's not the guy there's there's something there's something off with this guy you know and it sticks with you and so i think overall i have this number two on uh on my list of fincher movies i I love mark ruffle at the end of that scene just like so anybody else feel like we need to talk to this guy a little more (laughs) does this warrant further investigation yeah it's like uh yeah, they look at his watch and everything. I mean, that's that scene is played so beautifully, and the Fincher just shows he knows the perfect place to put a camera. The changing perspectives, the glances between the detectives. I mean, just e- even the little gestures, just him, uh, John Carroll Lynch folding his leg over another, like he's getting comfortable. Like he, he's he's kind of like got a braggadocious attitude. It's it, it's just genius, genius, high level shit. Yeah, no, I think we're actually in a pretty similar place on this movie. Like, I I think that if you think about his filmography from like a film history perspective, mm-hmm. um, and if you were to just ask, kind of maybe even like your standard kind of casual film fan, like 
name three David Fincher movies off the top of your head, and they're probably say like Seven and but Benjamin Button or Social Network, right? But I do think that Zodiac represented sort of like a maturing of his style that kind of he obviously goes straight from this into like a number of Oscar best picture type of films. Right. And there's some real craft in this that's like just feels like refined from, you know, some of his earlier works that were sensorial, but less, you know, maybe kind of finely curated. Like I think of the basement scene Mm -hmm. um, where, you know, there's Joan Hall's character is investigating, you know, he's, he thinks he's looking for one, you know, kind of lead around right. uh, the possible killer. And he, and then he begins to suspect that maybe he's in fact like with the new killer. And that to me is probably my single favorite scene in any David Fincher movie. Like, I think it's just so expertly made and the, the kind of implications and the innuendo in it um, are so subtle, but like powerful. I, that that to me is probably the highlight of this movie and what I, what I most remember from it. I agree. Yeah, that scene is just superbly creepy. And I I think another thing that, you know, he plays with expectations, you know, so like all all the all the killings are kind of at the beginning of the movie and they're like brilliantly executed. I I mean, I think that lake killing where the couple is tied up, her screams as she's getting stabbed are so blood curdling and like it, it gives you chills. I mean, and, and that's what people expect of him after seven. So he just shows like, yeah, I can still exercise that muscle. Like I, I, I can still do that. But, but then the rest is basically just like boring police work and investigative work. But he makes that insanely suspenseful. So that I mean, that that is a magic trick that like only the best can do to make to make the mundane seem um, thrilling is, uh, I don't don't think we'd seen him do that before. So that was incredible. Yeah. If you are rewatching Fincher films in in preparation for make, I think Zodiac is definitely a must watch. Yep. His next film is, he gets a best picture nominee out of, um, and that's the curious case of Benjamin Button. And if only one thing had happened differently, that shoelace hadn't broken or that delivery truck had moved moments earlier or that package had been wrapped and ready because the girl hadn't broken up with a boyfriend or that man had set his alarm and got up five minutes earlier or that taxi driver hadn't stopped for a cup of coffee or that woman had remembered her coat and got into an earlier cab Daisy and her friend would have crossed the street and the taxi would have driven by there's a lot of there's a range of opinions on this one. Where where do you fall? Um, it definitely one of my least favorites of his. It's strange that he found this material interesting. Honestly, um, it, it feels like I I don't think he would do this. This isn't in his personality, but it feels like he was kind of going. Awards glory with this one, you know, all the period, uh, the big sets and a lot of extras. This feels like he was gunning for a golden man more than like actually being truly interested in the material. And, you know, Brad Pitt, it's 
it's an effortful performance. I'll say that. Uh, he's really going for it with the, the old man makeup and acting like he's seven with a with an old man voice, kind of. But overall, you know, Eric Roth wrote the script, who wrote Forrest Gump, so it definitely has that kind of vibe. But he, he doesn't feel like a participant in this story. It's just like things are happening to him. And he's not that interesting a character. Like, the, the thing that's interesting about him is that he ages backwards, you know? There are some great passages. I, I, I really love the Tilda Swinton kind of uh, love story section. And I think Jared Harris is great as the as the tugboat captain. I think those those were really good passages. But overall, like, the love story with Kate Blanchett, I, I never really fully bought into it and it's it's just kind of strange it kind of makes you feel icky uh, for lack of a better word of like you know they stay with each other for the rest of their life with him being a baby and she's like having to change his diapers and stuff like I don't know it just like just didn't make me feel like it was a romantic situation at all and you know it does hold some unsentimental value in that about death and all the rest and uh, overall though i i just think this was a big miss for him i i I don't hold any personal attachment to this movie so I, i think it's ninth on my list overall so it's, it was nominated for 13 Oscars, um, and it won the more crafty ones. Like, it won art direction, makeup, visual effects, which is sort of, you know, what you would expect, I guess, from from a Fincher film. And I think that there was, like, a review from, I think it was the Evening Standard when this came out, that said that, in essence, it's it's a story told by a filmmaker who knows what he's doing, but not always why he's doing it. And it does seem sort of like the goal here was to make like a Hollywood epic or sort of mm-hmm. that like the two, what is this? Like almost like three hour long um, right. kind of Forrest Gumpy type of movie. And I have some sort of appreciation for like that type of a movie. And I guess the basic conceit of like somebody growing up backwards is like unique and, and memorable. I don't take a lot from like the, specific story other than just its general premise and i guess there's one sequence where brad pitt's sort of over narrating like the con like the coincidences of life and how they can all converge to like you know have oh, yeah. impacts and that that to me was probably the most memorable part of the movie but um no i don't have a real deep personal attachment to it it is a big departure i guess like from from any of other fincher's previous work but i think because maybe this is an oscar show and this was such a celebrated movie that I do see it as sort of one of now the tent poles of like, you know, a David Fincher conversation. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think in that regard, some of the more traditional Academy voters started taking him more seriously, like, oh, well, he is capable of making this kind of movie. So, you know, I guess, you know, maybe he he will get some consideration in the future. But Overall, it, it feels like he, he's strayed too far from what from what makes him 
such an innovative and specific and in independent thinking kind of director you know it 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 just didn't work for me overall fair enough well his next film was where finally kind of the oscar recognition probably lined up with what to me is one of his best movies too and that is the social network what was mr zuckerberg's ownership share diluted down to it wasn't what was mr moskovitz's ownership share diluted down to it wasn't what was sean parker's ownership share diluted down to it wasn't what was peter thiel's ownership share diluted down to it wasn't and what was your ownership share diluted down to 0.03%. Are you warmer on the social network? I'm red hot on the social network. <laughs> this is his best. This is the best movie. It's a masterpiece. I think maybe besides there will be it's the best movie of the 21st century. It's interesting. It just feels like this is, I don't know if there will be a more perfect combination of material, director, cast, um, just everything, all the elements coming together so smoothly that it, it it's like it was meant to be. Like, you know, it, basically the story is that... Um, Scott Rudin, the producer, called David Fincher after having read Aaron Sorkin's script and said, this is the best script I've ever read. You've got to read it. Fincher read it in a day. One, like, signed up for it, like, by the end of the weekend and was pitching studios by Monday. And it was greenlit in, like, two weeks. <laughs> so, like, that that never happens in studio movie making. So... The fact that it all came together so fast, I think, is kind of like a sign from God or something that uh, this movie was meant to be made with all these people. And Fincher said, I, I feel bad for everybody who had the Sisyphean effort of getting in their movie made, but we didn't. We were like on God's highway. All the lights were green. So it's, you know, clearly in terms of like, wrestling with studio execs and you know all the headaches of pre-production and uh stuff he felt like this was definitely one of his easier efforts he also said this movie wasn't a cakewalk but you know you have a script like this you you get to go to work going there's that line in was it ira levin's death trap where he says it's so good even a talented director can't even fuck it up that was this so bouncing off of that, what, one of the best scripts ever written in the history of movies. I mean, it's just astonishing. And the cast of characters is so perfect. I mean, all the supporting characters from Army Hammer and even Max Minghella and Rooney Mara, this launched her career, that amazing opening scene with Jesse Eisenberg and Andrew Garfield and Justin Timberlake perfectly cast and then Jesse Eisenberg gives what I think is one of the all-time great male lead performances I love him so much in this movie I mean I've seen this movie 20 times I could watch it every day probably uh and this is uh, of course uh, the first time that Fincher worked with Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross for composing the score of Nine Inch Nail and that score went on to win an Oscar and they've worked on every movie since together. So 
just the perfect coalescing of every, um, every department of movie, and it's just a Stone Cold masterpiece, and it's number one for me. Yeah, I was going to bring up um, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, too. You could see a world where if they, I mean, you know, who knows what the next 10 or 20 years of David Fincher's career look like, but you could see a world eventually where that relationship becomes like John Williams and Steven Spielberg. Like, they've been, he's obviously the social network is one of the iconic scores of the last decade. I also think the Gone Girl score is really excellent. And now uh, they're, they're scoring Mank as well. Yeah. So that relationship may carry forward. And yeah, having the opportunity to get Aaron Sorkin and Fincher working on a project together, you know, is, is rare enough on itself. And yet yeah, it really does strike all the right, all the right notes. Um, and it's obviously still as, as relevant as ever. Yeah. And, you know, a, a lot of people in, in the wake of kind of the, the, the villainy, I guess, in many people's eyes of Mark Zuckerberg, uh, a lot of people are for for a sequel, which I think the same people back together. My only worry there would be that Aaron Sorkin, of course, has been known to heavy, you know, be heavily politicized in his material, not in this movie, but in other movies. So I wouldn't want it to be, you know, too too much leaning one way or the other, but it would be fascinating to peek in at Zuckerberg at, at this point in his life compared to when he was first starting the company. Yeah, no question. Two left to go, and the next movie is one that I admittedly have not seen, so I'm not going to have a lot of thoughts on it, um, but what do you think about the girl with the dragon tattoo? I had Irina down there in that cage. Who's Irina, you might ask? Just another girl. Just another immigrant whore. Who misses them? Your sister wasn't... What? Your sister, Harriet, wasn't just another girl. You found her. What happened to her? So, I just rewatched it last night, and, um... Forgot to mention, too, and, and this goes with Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, but... The Social Network was the first of um, this new era of Fincher being the king of uh, trailers for his movies and mm-hmm. using uh, remixes of songs. So Social Network had, uh, you know, that remix Creep. of Radiohead's Creep, which was so haunting and just like, just maybe the most perfect trailer of all time. And then for a Girl with the Dragon Tattoo... Um, you know, I, I was super excited for this movie. I, I'd read all the books recently, and I love that trilogy so much. And when this teaser trailer came out with Karen O doing a remix of Immigrant Song by Led Zeppelin, I was, like, jumping around. I was jumping off the walls. Like, I was so excited for this movie. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's... It's a fascinating kind of detective story. Um, it, it has the unfortunate um, task of taking on such a thorough and um, acclaimed trilogy, you know. But I, I think Rooney Mara is, is pretty excellent as Elizabeth Salander. Uh, uh, certainly 
brave performance, I'd say, given some of the stuff she has to do uh, endure in scenes, including a very violent rape scene. Um, but yeah, I mean, she she's electric. I, I think overall, um, you know, there's there's so much to explore with this Vonger family, which is like the subjects the subject of um, this journalist coming to this remote place in Sweden. And so two and a half hours, even even as long as it seems, isn't enough to fully delve into all the intricacies and, you know, sordid stories of every family member. So it does feel kind of rushed in a way like it's it's just not enough time to cover all of that material and uh honestly given um fincher's most recent uh departure into tv with house of cards and mindhunter i think this would have been better served as a four or five part miniseries as opposed Mm -hmm. to a movie but still still really effective still there's um I mean, I don't want to spoil it for you, but I guess I will. Uh, Stellan Skarsgård ends up being the the big bad villain, and there's a scene with him and Daniel Craig in this in this scary kind of tech techy basement that is just horrifying, and uh, certainly in my mind one of the most visceral um, visual sequences that Fincher has ever filmed. So, I think I have it uh, six overall and honestly i i would love to see a sequel to this movie i don't think it will because it costs like a hundred million dollars and i don't think it made that much money but the second book is even better than the first so by some miracle i hope we get a sequel but if not it's um it's still a worthwhile watch now is the girl in the spiders well what's the relation to that for with that movie because fincher produced it but obviously didn't direct it right um uh, to my knowledge, that's um, Steve Larson is dead, the author of the trilogy, and he was working on that book. He was in the middle of it when he died. Um, so someone else finished the book for him, I think. Got it. Okay. So, yeah. Well, the last movie uh, prior to the release of Mank was, um, you know, you mentioned Mindhunter, you mentioned some of the work that he's done the last few years that's been away from film, um, but in 2014 uh, was Gone Girl. Nick loved a girl I was pretending to be. Cool girl. Men always use that, don't they, as their defining compliment. She's a cool girl. Cool girl is hot. Cool girl is game. Cool girl is fun. Cool girl never gets angry at her man. She only smiles in a chagrin-loving manner and then presents her mouth for fucking. She likes what he likes, so evidently, he's a vinyl hipster who loves fetish manga. If he likes girls gone wild, she's a mall babe who talks football and endures buffalo wings at Hooters. I I love this movie. I, I, I think it's, like, better than it should have been, honestly. You know, based on best-selling book by Gillian Flynn, who also wrote the script. And I think this might be his most perfectly cast movie. I mean, he said, you know, for the role of Nick Dunn, he cast Ben Affleck. 
um, because, you know, he knows what it's like to have to shutter his windows because of cameras and stuff. And like, so I love how he kind of like plays into like what these actors have experienced in real life into the characters. So, uh, you know, it's an inspired piece of casting. I don't, I, I don't know if Ben Affleck has been better in any other movie. I think he's fantastic in this. And just a really twisted, uh, perverse, uh, upsetting on marriage. You know, you think that obviously Amy Batchett crazy or whatever, but it, it plays both ways pretty nicely because he's obviously kind of a scumbag and not a very good husband himself. And, in the end, she like kind of makes the case that they're they're perfect together because they're so fucked up, like individually. You know how Amy pulled off everything. You're leaving town, your jaw just to the floor. You're like, oh my god. Uh, you know, you never think she was capable of operating on that level. But I mean, the, the scene that's burned into my brain personally is the uh, Neil Patrick Harris murder scene. Uh, with just the, with the, with the loud kind of guttural noises of Trent Reznor's score as, as the lights like dim in and out and she's just coming. It's, I mean, it's, it's fantastic. It's, it's really, uh, something you're not expecting and, uh, pretty, pretty thrilling to watch. But overall, like the supporting characters in this are so it's really funny overall, obviously in a dark kind of way because of the subject matter, but like it's, it's maybe his funniest movie ever, but Kim Dickens and Patrick Fuga as the detectives are so great. And uh, Carrie Coon as his sister and Tyler Perry and Rosamund Pike just, uh, you know, she absolutely earned her Oscar nomination for this movie. I mean, she's, she's so kind of scary and unhinged and the that that last scene in the bathroom it's but it's in in a weird way like you think that you know their relationship might work after they've gotten out all their very fucked up grievances so i think i have this fourth overall in uh in my ranking so we've gotten we've covered a lot of grounds an entire career, and obviously we're both eager to see what comes next. You want to recap your final? Your it sounds like you've list ranked them, and we went chronologically. What's your kind of ten to one as far as his his work? Yeah, my ten is Alien Three at number ten, Curious Case of Benjamin Button at number nine, Panic Room at number eight, The Game at number seven. Dragon Tattoo at number six, Fight Club at five, Gone Girl at four, seven at three, Zodiac at two, and The Social Network at one. There you go. And Mank still expected to come out this fall. Alex, really appreciate you taking the time to, to walk through this filmmaker's work. Great being back with you, Jake. It was fun. Cool.